Hello, welcome to The Saint and Miraculous. I am your host, Robbie Carlton. Today, we have a little bit of a change of pace. We are talking about artificial intelligence. The title is Fear and Hope at the Dawn of the Age of AI. I think this is a really important thing to be talking about. I am having this conversation with my good friend, Michael Bocelli, who generously agreed both to jump on at a kind of late notice to do this recording and also uh, as a result to push the recording he and I have already done about his own work, meta-relating, uh, a little ways into the future. So there will be another conversation with him coming down the pipe sometime later. But this feels, it's, it's in the air, it's pressing, things are, are happening very fast. And so it just felt like we, we wanted to get, to get this one out sooner than later. Things we're going to be covering in this conversation are we're going to give like a, a summary of what's happening right now. You may or may not be deeply in, involved in this, in this topic already, if, you know, in which case you probably know what's happening right now, but if not, that will be helpful. An overview of the technology. We're not going to get super technical, but just a little bit of an overview of uh, how it works. We both uh, have backgrounds in software engineering, but this is neither of our area of expertise. And then we're going to get into some of the political and philosophical and spiritual issues raised by this subject. And they really kind of cover, I think, most of the big topics in a broad way. And I think it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of energy. I was definitely very caffeinated when I had this conversation, which I can hear uh, in, the, in the audio. So that's advance notice for whatever that's worth. There's a couple of things I wanted to say uh, before we get into the conversation as well. Between recording this and today when I'm releasing it, there have been more developments that uh, we would definitely have talked about if they had happened before we recorded it. So uh, importantly, uh, a paper was published, a long paper, which I've not had time to read beyond the abstract and the, the table of contents. It's like a very long paper called Sparks of General Intelligence in ChatGPT or something like that. That's linked in the show notes to this podcast, wherever you're listening to it, you can, you can go look at that paper. And then maybe more dramatically, Elias Yukowski, who we talk about in the podcast, just published an article uh, in Time magazine calling for a complete halt to all AI development, ringing the alarm bell very loudly. So in the recording, we talk about Yukowski and we say that he kind of maybe has given up on trying to get this to stop. That's clearly not the case since we have made the recording. He has not given up. He's doubled down and he's really, you know making a big uh, push to draw attention to this. And I also have not had time to read that, but ironically, I was able to paste that, uh, the text of that Time article into ChatGPT and ask it to summarize it for me so I understand the summary of what he was saying. It's pretty good at that. The, the paper is too long. For, I tried doing that with the paper as well, but it's too long. And it, it's, which is a slightly worrying trend of like, oh man, Reading is already hard enough, and the fact that now we can just ask these machines to summarize things for us, we don't really have to read anymore, but uh, I'm going to try and resist that urge in general, but I, I just wanted to know as much as I could going into recording this intro, so that's my excuse, uh, and I'm sticking with it. There's one more thing that I want to add, both for the sake of your clarity and also my intellectual vanity, which is early on, there's a point where I contrast a connectionist approach with a machine learning approach. What I meant to say there was a symbolic approach with a machine learning approach. Uh, connectionist and machine learning are on the same side of that coin. The real dichotomy is between symbolic and connectionist. 
slash machine learning approaches. Anyway, I had a lot of fun having this conversation with Michael Bocelli. We cover many things. It's interesting. I learned some things. I think he learned some things. I hope that you will learn some things. So here is fear and hope at the dawn of the age of AI. Okay, Michael Pocelli, here we are. Hi. We are, we've been talking about having a conversation about AI, I don't know, at least five years. We've talked about <laughs> recording this conversation. Yep. And uh, everybody else caught up <laughs> and realized it was worth talking about. I don't know why. It just seems like suddenly people thought that they should make YouTube videos about AI. Might have something to do with the insane explosion in power that we've seen in the last year. Um, so we're here, um, and we're here to talk about AI. And um, and, and I, let me just set a little bit of context to this. So uh, both Pochali and I have um, backgrounds in computer science. Uh, my day job is as a software engineer. Pochali, uh, his day job was as a software engineer for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, we're both also kind of philosophy and consciousness nerds. So it's like a intersection of computer science, philosophy, consciousness, spirituality, the conversation about AI is just very uh, in, in, the, in the center of, of what me and Porcelli uh, like to talk about. Yes. And it's in the center of the discourse right now. It's in the center of the discourse. A lot of people are talking about it uh, very reasonably, and we're going to get into all of that. And I'll just say the basic arc of this conversation, we'll see if it goes this way. But the basic arc of this conversation is going to be, we're going to just talk a little bit about what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're going to do a kind of tour of some of the major issues which are implicated in what's happening right now and in the conversation of AI in general. So we're going to talk about the technology as it stands and, and what it's making possible. We're going to talk about uh, what is intelligence. We're going to talk about the economic impact and automation. We're going to talk about alignment problem, or the also called the control problem, um, consciousness explosion, and then the oh, sorry, intelligence explosion, not consciousness explosion. That's a different idea. That's kind of cool. Consciousness explosion, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. intelligence explosion, uh, and then um, consciousness, the ethics of consciousness, stuff like that, um, and maybe some other stuff in there as well. And and I'm holding it like. I, I want us to do just a primer on these things. Like I want to just give people like a general overview of, of, you know, like I say, what's happening and the issues. And I also, I, I want to lay out some of the reasons there's, you know, there are reasons to be worried about this. And I think we'll talk about those and they're worth talking about. I also want to lay out some of the reasons um, to not be worried or even to be optimistic or hopeful. Like I want to include both sides of that. And, and, open up well, what might this mean that's you know like uh barbara mox hubbard had this great question uh she she would run about technology and kind of in the face of the the atom bomb and she was kind of digesting i believe i'm still a long time since i heard her tell the story but she was digesting the the atom bomb and the implications of the atom bomb and the the question she started asking herself is what is the meaning of this technology which is good 
And, you know, it's kind of a mouthful. It's not like really the most elegant question. But but I think that that is a valuable question to ask in the face of scary new changes. So I think that's, yeah, just that's some of the context. And uh, yeah, maybe if you want to respond to the context before we dive into anything else. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about all of those things. I mean, I think at a, at a certain level, you know, it's fun for us to talk about these things and it's fun that there's a lot of people talking about it. And then I think there's, you know, folks who are maybe new to the conversation and feel sort of confused. And I think there's potentially some basic groundwork that we can include in this, you know, like to, at least from our, our point of view, uh, to, sh- to share with folks. And, and then, you know, in terms of it being reasons to be scared or reasons to be hopeful, uh, I think is like important. I mean, I think the implications of AI socially, society, politically, environmentally, like at, at many levels is like the, the potential impact is enormous. And the, and the analogy to the atomic bomb or some just incredibly huge or potentially huge breakthrough in kind of science or engineering, you know, like could, it could change, you know, reality in, in significant ways forever. Like I think that's a very real possibility. Anyway, yeah. it's worth talking I, about. I don't love the analogy with the atomic bomb because the, it's it's all downside. <laughs> I guess you could say nuclear power. Yeah. Well, nuclear. There was a lot. If you were into nuclear way back in the forties and fifties, it was like people loved it. They loved putting uh-huh. the little atom diagram, and it was like this is the best. It's going to solve everything. It's like we love right. nuclear. The nuclear age was like a positive thing. Right. But it turned out not so great. Maybe <laughs> yeah. that's complicated. I mean, another another analogy. I started saying this just under a year ago. I started saying, "Oh, we're at the dawn of the age of AI." Like with, yeah. the, and this is going to be a technological shift at the at at least as big as the information age. Yes, it's it's going to have the same level of impact on economics and the same level of impact on lifestyle. It's it's that big. It's that important. So I think that that's the the metaphor I've been using is the metaphor with the information age and especially yeah. the web, right? And like. Yeah. Who knew, right? Remember in like 1993 when you when you got a dial-up modem and like the nerdiest the nerdiest people had a dial-up modem and they were going on bulletin boards or they were going on like yep. one of the hundred web pages that were out there and like <laughs> yep. and and you know and people were saying and those nerdy people were saying this is a big deal. And right. everybody else was saying, I don't know, that looks pretty nutty, bro. Like, I'm still <laughs> doing my hacky sack or I'm, you know, whatever. I'm listening to my ska music at the park. And then two years later, three years later, four years later, it's completely transformed the economy and that the whole, you know, and now here we are, what, 30 years later. And it's like, yeah, I, of course, it's obvious to everybody what a big impact that was. I would say, you know, a year ago, we were in that moment where of the nerdy people with the dial-up modems of 1993, sure. 1992. And now we're in the, oh, like Amazon has opened and Google has just opened, right? And we're at the just the beginning of like regular people going, oh, this is making a difference in my life today. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think your analogy is almost like a minimum. It's at least as significant as that. You could say it's as significant as like electricity or the industrial revolution. And if you're really, this may be kind of previewing a later part of our conversation, the emergence of life on earth, right? It could be that significant. <laughs> like, oh, it's another form of life emerging on earth. 
Good, good. Yeah, it's at least as significant as the dawn of the information age. Yeah. Yep. So maybe uh, we'll just talk a little bit about what's happening. So for some people, and you know, I'll, I'll, um, there'll be time codes in the description, so you can jump around if you want to jump around. So for some people, this is not going to be news because they're they're up to date. And for some people, there, there, you maybe you've heard there's a thing called ChatGPT, or you've heard there's like this AI art generation, or you've kind of seen it on people's. Facebook profiles or whatever, and that's you know the extent. So we're we're just gonna cover the big what's happening right now, and you know basically, starting a little over a year ago, there were some pretty significant advances in, and this is kind of my take on it. So, Porch, jump in if you have mm-hmm. um, different different thoughts, but there were some pretty significant advances in a certain kind of technology which is a kind of deep learning um, a deep learning technology, and we'll talk about exactly what deep learning means, uh, for uh, specifically synthesizing images and mm-hmm. synthesizing images from text prompts. So what that means is you type in some text into a computer and it spits back out an image that it did not search on Google. It just generated the pixels of the image uh, and and what started happening because of some of these breakthroughs is it started making images which were incredibly either lifelike or just aesthetically compelling. Yep. Uh, and suddenly, and also it was making images of the thing you were describing. So there's like, you know, a dog wearing, a corgi wearing sunglasses or like a, a, a chair shaped like an avocado or, you know, some of these examples or like a, uh, a dog walking on the moon in a spacesuit, or just whatever example you could just tell it to do that and it would make an image that looked like that and not just that looked like it like yeah i can kind of see like a five-year-old like yeah i guess you're kind of trying to do that but that was like a photorealistic picture of a dog walking on the moon right yeah and so i think a lot of people that's when i really my ears perked up and i was like wait what what's happening here and and i started kind of you know playing with this stuff and I'll just say at that moment, you know, and this was kind of yeah, summer of last year, playing with uh, Mid Journey and, and Stable Diffusion and those things, I had kind of like an ecstatic spiritual experience. Like I had this like overwhelm of the beauty of the things it was producing. And, I, and it's weird to say this, and we're going to get into the art side of things. I think artistically it's complicated and I've, re- I've changed my feeling about the art side of things, but it, I can't help but still be kind of, kind of flabbergasted by how good looking the stuff it makes is. Like yeah. it makes really good looking stuff. And, and I had this just like wave of like, oh my God. And I could almost say like, uh, this is a, a thing that I'm going to say in more detail uh, uh, on a TikTok. Actually, I'm I'm working on a TikTok, which is a ridiculous statement, but I am working on a TikTok. But I'll say it here, which is like, there's a way you can say, what does it mean that God made us in his image? Mm-hmm. I think the real way to, it's not that like God is a dude with a beard and a dick. It's that like, it's that we are the part of reality, which is created like mm-hmm. deliberately created and yeah. not just kind of like, you know, squirrels make squirrels, but they're not thinking about making squirrels and then making squirrels. There's this kind of force multiplier of, of novelty generation that human beings have that's unlike anything in nature, except all of nature is like that. 
And this was the first time that there was like something else that had this like novelty producing quality that felt like another kind of force multiplier of novelty producing. And so I think that was like what the ecstatic response was. And anyway, so I dove really deep into it and, and, and then kind of, and then very quickly actually got bored of it. It was very interesting. And then suddenly it just felt kind of samey and, and like, I just lost interest. And then a few months later, ChatGPT dropped and mm -hmm. ChatGPT is using related similar technology. I understand the technology of the, the image stuff much better than the GPT stuff. So maybe we can kind of break those down. I think you might understand GPT better than me, but they work on similar principles broadly. But mm -hmm. uh, and we, again, we are going to talk about that. But this chat GPT came, which I think everybody, I can't imagine somebody listening to this hasn't been exposed to chat GPT at this point, because it's mm -hmm. just like the New Yorker is doing articles about it it's all over everywhere. But just in case you are just not paying attention to all that stuff, the basic idea of chat GPT is it's a chat bot. So it's a, it's just a, a text prompt and you type into the text prompt and then it responds as if it were a person with thoughts basically and you can ask it anything including which is one of the more impressive things is you can you know you can ask it questions like you would google and it, and it gives you answers which are more it, it understands your question at a much better level of like with google you know have to you have to get clever about like oh, i gotta put this word in but not that word because then i'll get too many results about this thing you got to kind of have some google foo sometimes to get the answer to the question you're looking for in google yeah. chat gpt is not like that it understands specifically what you're asking about and if it doesn't you can correct it you can say it'll give you an answer and you're like well wait no no no, i didn't mean that i actually meant this and it's like oh sorry i see what you were talking about la la, la. <laughs> so you're having this dialogue it's funny because i went back to using mid-journey recently and you can't do that with mid-journey yet like I'll, I'll give it a prompt and it'll draw something and i'll want to say yeah like that but just make this adjustment and you can't do that yet and it's that's annoying because now i'm already used to in chat gpt that you can give it these adjustments but but beyond even that kind of conversational thing and so you know i use it a lot to look up like if there's like a um shortcut key for some software i'm using or something like that like yeah. i actually find it way better to say like wait how do i do this in you know adobe audition and it'll just kind of tell me versus trying to google that there's stuff like that or you know anyway but the other thing it can do which is so fucking wild is like you can it it, it under, you can ask it for something in a different form so you can say give me a poem about blank in the style of blank you can say, yeah. give me a poem in the style of William Carlos Williams about the Mona Lisa, just whatever. And it, and it will, you know, the stylistic thing, better or worse, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But it just, you know, like, write me a rap song about X. Like it can, and it just immediately, again, this kind of weird generativity, it just generates this new content, which has never existed before. Um, and then I'll just say the one, I don't know if you've done this yet, and then I'll, I've just said a lot, and I would love to hear from you. But the one that blew my mind more than anything else, maybe, well, also code generation blew my mind a lot. Like, you can give it code prompts, and it will, you can ask it to do code stuff, and it'll do code stuff. And it sometimes gets it wrong, sometimes gets it right, but it's still very, very impressive. But the one that just absolutely delighted me, which if folks listening at home, if you haven't tried this yet, and Pocho, I'm curious if you tried this, you can ask it to be a text adventure role-playing game, and it will do it. <laughs> and you can so you can say be a text adventure role playing game. You describe a situation, and I'll respond and tell you what I want to do, and we'll go right. like that. And you can tell it like 
you know, I did like uh, make it be about Roman London. Like I want it set in Roman London. And it says, you're in the marketplace in Londinium. Ahead of you is the fishmonger selling the fish. To the right is a is a tavern where, you know, it, uh, and you can, it's literally, you can have a whole fucking game with it. Like Amazing. it's just, it, that that was just like oh my god like what's going on here so these two technologies came out or developed kind of they they'd been in the pipeline but they really you know got to a new level of sophistication and and power there's a lot has happened as a re- result of that good and bad and um these are the kind of things that that are at the forefront and you know there's a lot of other like the, what these technologies thing that they're resting on which we're about to get into in a moment of like what is the the technical side of things we're not going to get into great detail about that but a little bit um a lot of other technologies are possible which are kind of happening more in the background but i think these are the more flashy ones of these kind of creative things yeah yeah well i'll add a little color here i mean i I do think this is why people are all hyped up about like using it and talking about it and thinking about the implications and kind of both on the on the level of like is this going to replace my job or you know or how can I use this in my job to make me better at my job to oh my gosh is this like the emergence of whatever you know <laughs> apocalyptic ai scenarios or something mm-hmm. you know and i and i think that it's kind of captured the imagination uh, there's a few other things i kind of want to fill in kind of in the past year as yeah, well please. that like there was this whole news story about a, a Google engineer who was doing talking to the internal Google chat bot, sort of equivalent to chat GPT, but whatever, whatever he went like public with his thoughts that it's actually conscious. And then Google right. fired him. That was kind of weird. Yeah. He was, he was a whistleblower of the, the consciousness whistleblower. Yeah, yeah. yeah, He was kind of trying to be a whistleblower. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think now that like it was a few months later, the chat GPT came out and now that the hype is out, I think he's kind of, in the media more like see i was right like this kind of kind of this type of thing and then facebook has one that like so we've you know it's always been part of ai history to make algorithms that play games right like deep blue beating kasparov at chess back in i think it was 1999 approximately this Mm -hmm. kind of thing and like Mm -hmm. there is a very famous game called diplomacy which is an old board game Mm -hmm. but it's a board game that is really very psychological and political i've never played it but i've heard it's like there's just a lot of like trying to persuade players to like join your strategy and to do what you want them to do and you're just trying to manipulate other people into doing things in the game board it's kind of the game is it's a kind of like risk yeah board game risk but instead of it all being decided by dice rolls it's just decided by diplomacy by you're you're going and having conferences you know the yalta conference or whatever like you're going and negotiating with the other world leaders to try and make alliances, but then you stab people in the back. But yeah, but like you said, it's the mechanics of the game. It's not a mathematical game like chess or go. It's a psychological game. It's a psychological game. And apparently Facebook has made essentially an AI based player that can play at like essentially tournament, like world tournament level diplomacy. Which is kind of scary in its own right, because it's like, oh wait, the AI is now really good at like persuading other high-end diplomacy players to do what it wants and i'm like oh that's kind of a bit of a frightening thing but, but uh you know there was there was another sort of reminded me of the um a strange game the only winning move is not to play from yes. uh war games yeah 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 
you know, there another sort of like I suppose kind of event along the way was sort of early on. I mean, it's it's interesting. We're at the nearing the end of March. April first is around the corner, and I think on April first a year ago, uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who's sort of this famous AI uh, alignment whatever tech philosopher guy published on less wrong, which is kind of a gathering point on the internet for people who love to talk about rationality and artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and these related issues kind of published. Um, it, it almost seemed like it was half joking, but half serious kind of like, Hey, it's too late and whatever AI is going to whatever. And now we just got to like, I suppose like just embrace our end in, with dignity or something like this. And it was like, is this an April fool's joke or not? But like <laughs> those people are, they're usually a little bit ahead of the curve. Like if you kind of, oh, a lot about, of, ahead of yeah, yeah, they, they've been talking about it for a very long time, but like what a lot of people are talking about now, like in the New York times is kind of what they were talking about a year ago. Like, what does this actually mean? But you know, folks in those circles are like, they've taken this, this idea of super intelligence and alignment, which we're going to talk about a little more, like very seriously for a while. And they were kind of saying, these events, whatever they are, the the emergence of these giant models, generative things, the image ones and the mm -hmm. like Dolly and Mid Journey and these chat ones that now there's a bunch of them. Like this is, you know, we have entered into the phase where these tech giants with huge resources are essentially just trying to get there first. And we're now in this kind of like capitalistic competitive race that is like they're going to like throw caution to the wind and they're just going to keep trying to like create the latest, greatest, whatever it is. And like, that's exactly what you would expect to see in a moment leading up to like the doom scenario. Right. Right. So we're in the, yeah, we're in the arms race, which is, this is the fear end of the spectrum. And yes. we're, I think we're, well, let's, let's come back to that when we talk about the uh, alignment problem. Cause yeah, there's a, there's a lot more to say about that. So one of the things that's happened in the last year, is that some of the people that have been kind of warning the alarm bells about the dangers of AI are even more so, or maybe even like given up. I mean, it's kind of interesting. No longer, like, I mean, Yudkowsky for years has been ringing that alarm bell very loud. And I have a story I want to tell about uh, Yudkowsky uh, in this conversation, but suddenly he has, um, is kind of maybe thrown in the towel, maybe not, we're not totally sure. It, it, it's interesting. Anyway, I, I think that that is a overly, I have always thought his view is useful and overly pessimistic, and I continue to think so. Uh, even while now, if he's thrown in the towel, it's, I don't know if it's useful anymore. But anyway, <laughs> it's yes. still. So let's just briefly talk about the technology. Um, we're not going to go into huge detail, but sure. for a long time, AI, so AI, artificial intelligence, is, is computers trying to do things which we would typically call intelligent. And we're going to get into what we mean by intelligent later. But you know, you have some kind of, folk definition of, of you know uh understanding of what intelligence means so you know you're trying to make a computer do intelligent things so that looks like um solving problems being creative solving problems where it's not just given a step a, a sequence of steps to carry out but it actually has to look at the space of the problem and determine its own sequence of steps, which is what we do, right? Like that's what human beings do that's mm -hmm. different from a rock <laughs> or, yeah. uh, you know, other non-sentient, non-intelligent things. So historically, one of the approaches, this was a more symbolic approach where you would 
try and write code which somehow modeled the world and then try to kind of draw inferences from the world. So you would write code that somehow understood, you know, say you are um, writing an image synthesis program like what Midjourney is. You would write code that understood what an apple looked like and it had in its data bank. An apple is round and red and shiny. And so when somebody typed in, show me an apple, it would go and look at its like understanding of what that meant and say, oh, it wants a red, round, shiny thing. And it would make a red, round, shiny image. Now, it, that never was in any way successful in image generation, clearly. I mean, you can just imagine how, what a terrible idea that is. But the same thing in like chat kind of applications, you know, they were doing similar things with expert systems. It's a mm -hmm. kind of technology that was about that, where you're essentially trying to program in like, the, the diagnostic process, if you're a doctor, right? That's an example of what an expert system might attempt to do so that it, it knows, like a doctor kind of has an algorithm where they have a sequence of questions that they ask and like, do you have a fever? Okay, if you have a fever, go down this branch of the possibility tree, do you, you know, and you're kind of trying to build a picture of what the symptoms are and then figure out what the treatment's gonna be. And so that might be something that you could manually program in an expert system or a symbolic system to try and understand. What's happening now is not anything like that. What's happening now is instead they this kind of technology, which for a long time didn't work, and there are reasons for that, and maybe Port, you want to get into that. But for a long time, it didn't work. That suddenly started working uh, for a couple of different reasons, or a few different reasons, which is they they've built a kind of a a, a circuit. So it's a, just a very big network of nodes, and this is called a neural net, right? So this is what deep learning, so the other approach is called the kind of connectionist approach. This is called the machine learning approach, and then specifically the deep learning approach is where you are building a network of nodes, which is you're calling a neural net, and each node is a very simple little device. It's, it basically, all it does is it adds up its inputs and then either decides to fire or not based on a function, basically. Yeah, that's that's enough <laughs> detail. There's some math behind that, and there's different yeah. things. But but basically, it's just it's just a bunch of little nodes in a network, meaning they're all connected in a in a particular topology, right? So, and the topology turns out to be kind of important. But there's this kind of network of nodes that each node takes as input some numbers and then outputs a number, and you build this huge network of these things, and then you feed it inputs. And then it gives you outputs, and then you tell it whether you like the output or not. Like, mm -hmm. and that's essentially, and so you give it this feedback, and then it can adjust the way that it's adding up all of the different numbers together in subtle microscopic ways for every round of feedback. And, and it slowly converges on a particular network with particular weights, which means the ways that each node prioritizes the, the inputs that are coming in, uh, it ends up with a set of weights which allows it to do some particular thing. So in the case of mid-journey, the way that it works is you train it by saying, here is a noisy picture of a dog. Mm -hmm. Show me the dog without the noise. And then it shows you something and you say, ah, that's kind of like the dog without noise or that's not. And over time, it learns how to turn noise into a dog until eventually you can just show it noise and say, find me the dog in that noise. And it goes, okay, well, I guess this is where the dog is. And so, but it's, but the way it does that, it's kind of like, 
it's it's almost like it's dreaming like it has this quality of like it's just hallucinating a dog out of noise and then you and so you so that's essentially the kind of the mechanics of it and you know it, what it reminds me of i don't know if you've ever had this experience and then the chat gpt is it's similar but similar with yeah. words um but i don't know if you've ever had this experience sometimes if i'm falling asleep and i'm reading a book i will fall asleep and my brain will continue the sentence that i'm reading and then I'll wake back up and it's like, no, that was a different sentence. But <laughs> it's like my brain has like an autocomplete, right? Like it's kind of like the autocomplete yep. of your phone, right? Like my yep. brain has an autocomplete, which is running. That's what this is. That's what ChatGPT is basically. It's, it's the same, whatever that mechanism of your brain trying to predict what the next word in a sentence is going to be over and over again. That's what the chat is doing. And then the, the mid-journey is doing the equivalent for images. And so it's this paradigm shift. Like it's this paradigm shift of like suddenly this technique has become very effective, but there are implications to that, this technique, which are really interesting because one of the things you got to realize is the people that have built this thing don't really understand how it's doing what it's doing. Like yep. it's, a, it's a little bit of a black box and it comes out with answers, but you know, the, it's in the same way that a human being you don't really know why a person is saying any one thing that they're saying because it's been generated over the whole lifetime of their experience accumulated is is kind of generating this result. And so anyway, so I'll stop there and I'll, I've, I've said a lot and now Portillo. Yeah, well, let me just start with where we left off on the neural networks with a small technical detail. Then I kind of yes. go back to the AI kind of general approach over time. Uh, so one thing you said that it could have been a little misleading is like the, the the models are essentially they go through a training phase which is sort of like what google does internally to like tune this so they have a network of nodes then they pump a bunch of data in it and their engineers do the feedback to train the model then once the model is trained they pack it up and they ship it and that's the thing that we use when we type in the things it's like kind of a pre-train and it's like what the difference between gpt3 and gpt4 is right it's more nodes and maybe more training data and it and it went through a training phase and makes it even superior whatever version of the previous one so we're not training it when we're using it i mean we kind of are but like the the original training phase is over right it's that's right when we start using it that's right yeah thanks so there's something you said there about like hey like we don't really know what it's going to do or say and we kind of go like ooh, isn't that cool and i've been trying to think of like what is it like when, when AI, so AI is a term that computer scientists came up with a long time ago. I think it was in the fifties, there was like a thing called the Dartmouth conference, which was sort of the original conference on AI. And around the same time was kind of Alan Turing's original paper called the imitation game, or that we talks about the imitation game in there. And the Turing test came out of that idea. And I was like, well, why does this seem different than like, what the computer programmers were doing before, right? And you kind of hit on it in a way. It's like, there's something that is like almost deterministic about the computer programs before. It's like, well, we specify do this and this and this, and we branch or we loop. And, but like, we can look at what we told it to do. And we can basically imagine that the different ways it's going to do it when it, when the program executes on the computer. But like, there's something about what an AI whatever this term means, what program is doing, which is like, we're sort of expecting it to do something novel, right? We're expecting it to kind of like create a result that we couldn't have mm -hmm. 
imagined before we wrote the code, right? And like, I think this is common across both of these paradigms of AI. I think in the the old school way was like, hey, we create a, like a model of reality by connecting all these logical predicates that describe, you know, like apples are red or, you know, horses have four legs. And if we put enough of these details <laughs> into this rule system and then ask it a question, it'll go like, and like, Mm-hmm. say something that we wouldn't necessarily have expected it to say something that is novel. And then that's sort of like, Oh, that's intelligence. Like there's, there's almost this desire for it to do something novel. That is part of what we, why we call it artificial intelligence and just not regular computer programming. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the novelty is important and, and I, but I wonder, is it like something we're not expecting or it's something that we didn't put in that? We want to get something out that isn't just, well, we told it apples are red, and then we asked it what color are apples, and it said red. That's not interesting. We want it to do something that we didn't tell it to do. Yes, right, which is kind of weird, right? It's like like we almost want to say, like, hey, it's got a a will of its own, or it's got agency, or consciousness, or something where it's like it's generating something that we did not specifically tell it to do, and it doesn't seem like, like otherwise computer programs just sort of seem like, I don't know, automatons, like that we just, they don't seem intelligent in this way because they're just doing what we told them to do. There's something in common across all of these systems, which is basically that, whether you're talking about the old school, good old fashioned AI, GoFi, or with these rules, or this kind of like emergent sort of neural network thing, like either way, it's kind of generating this thing. And like this, there's almost like this internal debate. It's actually still ongoing. It's not over. Like, because what the, the AI engineers and philosophers or whatever are talking about is like, can we get whatever this human level and general intelligence is out of these neural networks in this kind of paradigm where we just like add more nodes, add more training data. And then is it really thinking or is it just sort of simulating thinking? Right. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or do we actually, does does there actually need to be some other hard-coded things or some symbolic aspect to it that like, you know, what is the human mind really like? It kind of raises the question, like, are we just this like neural network as well? It seems we're actually kind of born with some of these neural network weights in our brains already pre-created, which are like the outputs of, I guess, evolution over time, right? Like, Well, and the uh, network topology as well as like, Yes. Important. And which is also another output of evolution. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I wanna I want us to move on. I'm realizing if we want to cover everything. We're getting into technical rabbit hole here. We're getting slightly technical. So let's move on to because I think we're gonna briefly touch on this one. It's not the area that we're best equipped to, you know, there's other people talking about this, which is uh economic impact and automation. Well, I think it's worth I'll I'll try to hit a bunch of things all in a row here because like I think, you know, if you think about the history of humans relationship with technology, it often is like, well, let's build a thing that sort of does something a human can do. Oh, we could dig with our hands. Oh, but now we have a shovel. Okay, but now we have a tractor, right? It's like, okay, we're just doing something just more of it by inventing technology. And then every time we do that, it seems like, oh shit, this is like going to replace us. And there's a whole history of like rebellion against this like, you know, we had like hand-woven textiles and then it was like well then we created looms right and like these these looms were these steam-powered machines that just wove fabrics and rugs and all and everyone was like whoa this is doing it like and nobody really cares about like being a hand weaving person those (laughs) there's certain there's certain things that people used to do i mean 
there was a job in the early 20th century that people had that was called computer, which was to just do like thousands of multiplication tables and to write them all down right. and to cross check each other's work. And then we like said, well, fuck, we can create a like <laughs> this electrical thing that does exactly what they're doing, you know, with way more precision and way, way faster. We call right. those things computers. Like, right. and, that, and that's what we call computers now, right? And that job is now gone. So there, there is a history of essentially job replacement happening all through, even in the pre-computer age, like even the pre-electrical age, right? Like, and we kind of go, there's always sort of a moment socially, politically, where people go like, oh no, like we're going to lose our livelihoods. But then it sort of disappears. And then it's like, well, we have more people alive and nobody is like, basically hand weaving rugs or computing well, multiplication tables anymore, but they're doing something else. Right. Right. That it turns out there's always more to do. There's always more to do. Yeah. But I do wonder about while we're doing kind of history of technology stuff, like, you know, I think a useful way to relate to the history of technology in general, and this comes from Ken Wilber is the good news, bad news of progress. And this is true, not just about technology, but it is true about technology that basically you know, no technological advance has been all bad news or all good news. I just said about the atom bomb, all downside, but you know, the, maybe the bomb is pretty much all downside, but the 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 kind of the underlying technology has also you know upsides, right? But so that's a basic kind of principle that you can just kind of take with you and be pretty confident about is there's good news and bad news of progress. Yes, and what these technologies do is they amplify our efficacy mm -hmm. and so we are able to affect more change in the world as yeah. technologies progress and so um for good and ill right mm -hmm. so so i think that that is also true of this technology like there's no way this technology is an exception to that and so we can just kind of that's as a baseline i think is a safe assumption and then the thing about the the kind of more of the economic side of things like like the Luddism, right? Like that was Ned Ludd was the the kind of leader of the people who would go around smashing the looms, right? Because mm -hmm. they thought that, you know, they were going to be out of work. And it turns out you just, you know, once the looms are making the rugs, you just, the, you find something else for the people to do. But I, and I don't, I'm not a good enough kind of uh, historian of economics or whatever. Like I don't understand it, the history of economics well enough to know the answer to this. But it seems to me at least recently that Yes, we always find more stuff for people to do. And the wealth that is generated by the new technology seems to accumulate in fewer and fewer hands. That there doesn't seem to be, there's a kind of like the rising tide lifts all boats kind of situation where like there's definitely, you know, poverty is being eliminated. So like the baseline gets raised up. But then there's also this, the disparity between the, the lowest and the greatest also gets raised up. And this gets into economics, which I don't really understand. But one of my fears about this AI stuff is it's going to be an another kind of like the internet winner takes all. A lot of wealth and power is going to accumulate in a few small hands as a, as a result of uh, the technology. So that, I guess that is an economic concern, even though it's unlikely that when it starts replacing the jobs that we're currently doing, that that means that we won't have other things to do but it's like every time that happens, a little bit more of the wealth kind of is siphoned off into the hands of the controllers of the 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 big levers. I'll stop there. I don't know how to argue that case because, like I said, I'm not a 
historian of economics. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too much into this kind of, it's sort of like the critique of capitalism sort of thing. And definitely there are some dynamics where it's like, hey, the more wealth you have, the more you can spend some of that wealth to essentially like make wealth out of nothing or make more wealth out of protecting your wealth or, you know, whatever, centralizing or controlling, you know, bigger and bigger parts of the economy. It does seem like there's some truth to that, but then I think there also is the truth of disruption. Mm -hmm. And there's like a long history of that. And, you know, in some way, I think these, these kinds of forces like equal out over time. Like I could definitely make the argument. And this is one of the things of the recent history is, is like, you know, these big AI things, like if you think about deep blue or Watson that won jeopardy or these other, you know, the alpha go that beat the go or the, these were all like AIs that were essentially like created and controlled and utilized solely by the big players like Google or other deep mind and other, but like, the difference, and this is one of the big differences of the past year or so, is like there is more of a direct access to the AIs that the public gets to have now, right? Like we could interact with Google search and we would know that there was an AI back there generating the search results, but we were sort of interacting with it very indirectly using the search interface. But now it's like the the the, the levels of, or the layers of access are like going down and like more people can like, just tell AIs directly what to do. Right, but we don't control, we don't have control over it. No, no we don't totally control them. No, right. and, it's, and, and it's prohibitively expensive to build one yourself. Like you, sure. you basically need to have millions and millions of dollars of funding to be able to do it. Totally. Of, yeah. But the access is doing a thing where you can be, hey, you know, do something else besides, you know, <laughs> making rugs. It's like, well, I think there are folks like say graphic designers, you know, I have, I have a friend of mine who's like very way, you know, he does video production. He uses all the creative tools. He does work, you know, for Hollywood, you know, movies and TV commercials and all this kind of stuff. But like, he's definitely trying to figure out how to like augment what he does using these generative models. And because he has access to these generative models and like, there's a whole, what you might even call like a secondary industry that's being built around like, how to give the AIs good prompts, or if you're right. in this field, how to use these language models to like right. do like drafts of legal contracts better. And like, there are people that are essentially thinking about their current profession in an AI enhanced way, such that they could become like, not just your average lawyer, but the super lawyer. And those people I think will outcompete the people that don't adapt in this way. But in terms of the open access, like people are carving their own pathways Use, even though the control of the, the models yeah. themselves is like these big players, like there's massive uh, adaptivity into new, like there's a way that the, the systems are actually helping people like recreate their profession in a way very quickly. It's kind of amazing. I mean, it's interesting. Yes. Like you could say, but I, I think a, a reasonable analogy would be to say, well, Amazon's really good for for authors because you can just self-publish you know you don't have to like there's no middleman blah, blah blah and it's like right but who really won in amazon is amazon like amazon won even amazon won by providing tools for professionals to be able to achieve things that they otherwise couldn't yeah. do in part right um and so i just i i don't know that I, I think it's complicated. In the, and like I said, I don't know enough about it. Another yeah. analogy would be to say, it's kind of like the moment where, you know, Photoshop first came out and like graphic designers prior to that were using like Bristol board on like 
easels in their house and like drawing lines with rulers and using ink and paint and like that's how you did graphic design was you had a, a piece sure. of paper in front of you yeah. and then photoshop came out and some graphic designers learned how to use photoshop and some didn't and now it's like the idea that uh, you'd have a professional graphic designer who doesn't live inside of photoshop or illustrator or one of these technologies is would be kind of absurd like I, maybe they're out there but they're a they're a niche kind of rarity they're not the the main body of the profession well let me see if i can kind of break us out of this economic thing Great. like by <laughs> adding in another thing which is like I, I i do think it's true that when you have a new thing big players get to exploit it sooner but then i think once something becomes like super generally useful it's almost like they pass into the public domain or open source and like we could see that in, in it's like nobody has a monopoly on money i mean you could say central banks kind of do but like the idea of money or something or written language like nobody has a patent or whatever on english it's mm -hmm. just like we it's a commons at this point and like right. sometimes a new innovation is just so freaking great it it just like spreads and like the creation of like control points to control access no longer make any sense right it, it, all you need is somebody who could be like well i could just create something just as good as that over here and just give it away for free. I mean, that's sort of what happened with Linux, right? It's like, oh, mm -hmm. now like Linux is still the predominant operating system on the internet. I mean, everywhere, mm -hmm. like it's, mm -hmm. okay. Like in, in, in evolution to kind of bring in the kind of biological thing, anytime there's a new thing, like, hey, turn sunlight into energy or- At one point that was the hotness. The turn sunlight into energy was like, oh shit. Yeah, and then it's like it's just everywhere now. All the plants do this, all the animals do that, and it's like this is a universal innovation, right? But there was a time when it was like some dude in his basement, <laughs> <laughs> right? But I, and I and I do like this kind of whatever this this there's a centralizing force I think in the economy, which is kind of like consolidate more things and achieve efficiencies of scale and you know whatever or you know wealth accumulation, and then I think there's kind of this disruptive force as well. And I think the, the, that dynamic is, I don't think it's problematic. I just think it's sort of, you can see that type of dynamic all over the place. And it's kind of like, all right, like, that's fine. You, you could say like our cells in our body do their own sort of decentralized things, but our brain is kind of like, it's sort of <laughs> quasi enslaved them. Like, no, you're a body, right? But I mean, it's like, okay, you know, like there's a little bit of both happening. <laughs> All right, I don't know that you succeeded in breaking us out of the economics thing, but it was interesting what you said. I am now going to formally break us. Well, no, I should, I'm not, because I'm just going to say one more thing, which is related. It's not really about the economics. Well, it is, which is I think there's also a very valid concern, like like visual artists are concerned uh, about their livelihood, like right? The theft. Like about, the theft. Right, right. Well, there's the livelihood, but then there's the specifically the theft, right? And I think... For some reason, the 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 linguistic side of things has not kind of had the same response. I'm not sure why, but mm -hmm. I think maybe because the the visual stuff you can you because basically the way that it was trained was on like a, a data set of images from all over the internet that were of you know various provenance, and they weren't particularly diligent with making sure they were only using um kind of open source or comments creative comments images they just used a bunch of images from the internet yeah and like a really lot like they scraped like this data set is like you know terabytes large and they scraped like this huge swathe of the images from the internet and so one of the things that people have noticed is if you give the you know some of these image generate generation tools 
the right prompts, it will basically spit out an exact replica of somebody's actual artwork that they made. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and definitely a lot of this stuff that it's generating is not that. Like there are people that are saying this is just image bashing. It's literally just Photoshop remixing of images. And it's like, that's not what's happening. It's doing something much more interesting and sophisticated than that. But there are edge cases where you can provoke it to produce replicas of other people's artwork. And suddenly you're in an incredibly not understood like area of what what does copyright mean? Like, yeah. does it, you know, like, uh, how do we understand this? That, that, you know, because how does a human artist learn their craft? They look at the, the, the art, artistic productions of all the other artists and they, you know, and then they do a bunch of other stuff, but that's- Sometimes they literally try to repaint an exact yeah. image in order to learn how to paint. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a very important part of the, the process. So like, in what sense is this different? Well, it's different when they spit out, you know, so maybe it needs to be better about making sure that it, what it's doing is a, is enough of an amalgam of different images and not just sure. like a single one, but it, it just gets very complicated. And I don't know how we're supposed to think about this. It just feels very difficult. I, you know, I sympathize greatly with the, with visual artists that have spent their whole life mastering a craft, which now feels like it's the you know at least aspects of it have been kind of can now be kind of instantly reproduced by anyone using a machine i'm in a similar boat with software engineering like i spent a, a large part of my career learning how to be a software engineer and, and studying all that stuff and now parts of what i do are kind of replaced like you know i'm not it, it, at least it can do it can do some of the stuff that it used to not be available to to a machine i want to tell one story about this though because so, but I'm going to tell an abbreviated version of the story because uh, I actually have already recorded the story for a Patreon-only episode, but in much more detail. But uh, this is the abbreviated version. So when I was trying to name this podcast, ChatGPT was just kind of blowing up. So I went to ChatGPT and I'd seen with the, let me start by saying, you know, with the mid-journey stuff and the, the image generation stuff, I had seen artists saying, the, the thing I kept hearing them say is there's no intentionality. Like the artist was seeing something in the output, which I couldn't see. I'm not a visual artist. That's not my kind mm -hmm. of main thing. And, and, and I was saying, these things are kind of flabbergasting to me because I couldn't produce this image if I sat in Photoshop for a million years, right? And this thing is spitting it out in seconds. Um, but the visual artist was saying this thing that's like, there's something missing. And, the, and there seemed to be this kind of refrain of like, there's something, there's a missing intentionality or there's a missing like clarity or there's something that... You know, the, there was this refrain, and I was like, "You guys are just trying to <laughs> carve out a niche, right? Like, this is an economic activity that you're making when you're making this statement. You're just trying to say, no, 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 what we do is different." And I wasn't seeing the difference. So then I went into ChatGPT to try naming this podcast, and I basically I, I said, "Okay, here's what the podcast is about," and I gave it like a, you know a lot of text about it, and I said, "Give me some suggestions, give me some names," and it would give me these names that were so bland, and they were totally adequate podcast names like i kind of think but like science and religion integrating the blah blah there were some that were probably lifted directly from ken wilber book titles like there were definitely some <laughs> things that were i'm like i recognize that one you know an integral approach to blah 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 i'm like i didn't say integral like where did you get that <laughs> but there was just you know and so they it was giving me all these things that were just like this is just it's absolutely adequate and it doesn't move me in any way and so then i was like okay i i need to like like, give me something more poetic. I'm like, give me something more poetic, like, you know, like something more, less literal, more kind of lateral, left field. 
And it was like, on something more humorous or irreverent. And it was like, the lateral view, a humorous look at blah, blah, blah. Like it took the content of what I was saying and baked it in titles. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, and I'm really trying to get it to give me something that I like. And it didn't give me anything I like. And eventually I'm like, well, maybe I'm being too literal in the way that I'm asking. So let me ask it in a way which is more poetic, like so that maybe that will, you know, mirror me. And so then I'm like, you know, go wild, man. Like, let your freak flag fly. Like, sing me a song of the sane and miraculous. Like, you know, and, and, then, and then it kind of comes back with a list of really boring titles again. And then I was sat there and I'm like, the sane and miraculous. I kind of like that. That's like, oh, yeah. I think that might be it, right? But, it, it, but the, the point of that is partly like it, the usefulness of the tool. Like, it actually, it forced me to enter the, you know, the creative space that I needed to find the name. But it also there was something that it couldn't do. And then I understood what the artist has been talking about because, you know, words is more mm -hmm. my domain. Mm -hmm. And I understood what the artist has been talking about. And I think the way that I would characterize it, and maybe we're getting into the deeper waters here, mm -hmm. is the, the way that I would characterize it is like, I was looking, there was a feeling that I wanted to convey in words. There was an inner experience which I wanted to find words to transmit so that somebody else would have some version of that inner experience. But what I'm just describing, that's communication, right? That's poetry, that's language, that's communication. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to get the machine to do that, but the machine couldn't do that because it didn't have an inner experience. So even though I was trying to describe an inner experience to it in great detail and then tell, tell it to kind of sum that up in one pithy podcast title, it didn't have an inner experience to be able to understand how to do that. So all it could do was synopsize. It couldn't create poetry. So this takes me to one of the things that I, I'm gonna interrupt myself and I apologize for that. <laughs> a few years ago, Google started doing auto completion in emails. And I started saying, and it's actually in a recording of an old podcast, How to Be an Okay Person, which is in, currently in the archives. It's never yet seen the light of day, which is a live recording we did, where I say, and I'm sad that I didn't get this out there years ago, but where I say about that Google autocomplete thing, anytime it makes a suggestion, you should defy it. Never autocomplete what Google tells you to autocomplete. Always find a different way of saying it. Always use it as a provocation for your own creativity. Don't just say what the robot wants you to say, because what the robot wants you to say is what everybody has always said. And so there was just like a railing against that autocomplete thing. And I think that one of the technologies that we could build using this exact same technology which I haven't seen yet, but this is like a request for someone out there that is, you know, has more time on their hands or is interested in this, is build uh, a plugin for a text editor, which tells you how predictable you're being. <laughs> so it reads what you're saying and it says, yeah, I, I would have expected that it would be the next word. And it kind of color codes it or whatever. And so then if, you, if you're all read, that means that it's just, it's so predictable. You're just saying shit that's already been said a thousand times. And then the more you find it, then it goes greener. And so then you're trying to get your, your text as green as possible. Now, I don't know what that would produce, but I think that would be a really interesting use of this technology because it's, it's the same thing. It's just in reverse. And so then I'll, I'll make my final point, which is I suspect an optimistic way of understanding what this stuff is doing. I suspect what's going to happen is it's going to reveal to us the thing we do, which is not automatable. It's actually going to bring into relief by automating a bunch of stuff, which right now we're doing, thinking that's the important thing. It's going to bring more into relief 
the thing which is actually uniquely human and conscious, which mm-hmm. which the which the technology is not going to be able to replicate, which was my experience with ChatGPT, uh, and I think what these artists were saying about Midjourney. Now, w- there's a there's a broader question of will that ever happen with some more sophisticated AI, which you and I could get into a long fight about, and maybe we will in a little bit. But with I think with this current deep learning stuff, I think that we're gonna hit a wall where we're gonna start to see, oh, it can't quite do what we do. Yeah, I mean, there there's something about what you're saying that feels on, and maybe I would describe it a little bit differently. Like, I don't necessarily know that there's just some kind of like uniquely human mystery that is just, you know, never replicatable in a machine. I wouldn't put it that way, but I would sort of put it kind of like how I put it earlier. Like, hey, when we think of what does it mean for a thing to be intelligent, it's like, oh, it comes up with something that we didn't put in there to begin with, right? Or we're surprised, or there's something like novelty happening. And like, what if in a way, it's not just that's what we mean when we start thinking computer programs exhibit intelligence, but that's actually what we mean when we think other people are exhibiting intelligence as well, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of like, well, why did this author take off? Or why did this artist take off? Mm -hmm. It was just people looked at it and were just like, shit, nobody ever really did that before. Mm. That's wild, right? And it's it's like, there's something about, it's, it's more than just simply repeating the previous stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, it's like, well, is there a new frontier? And, it, you know, and sometimes it's like a, a new frontier in science. Like, wow, how did Einstein come up with that stuff or whatever? But mm-hmm. sometimes it's just a new frontier in just the reaches of creativity and novelty. And like when an artist looks at the output of mid journey and kind of goes like, ah, it's missing that spark. He mm-hmm. probably is seeing something real. And you're thinking, oh, I, that is missing. Right. Cause it's sort of showing us, but like, it wouldn't be long before it did some of those things. And then, but we would still say like, well, it's still, I've seen it before. I mean, maybe this is just an aspect of our psychology, right? We're just sort of going like, oh, right. Like if if it's generating like, you know, preschool level reading, like, you know, go dogs go or whatever, you know, see Tom run. Mm-hmm. You're kind of like, oh, I've heard this before. Right. You know what I mean? But like mm-hmm. at, at a certain point, like, I mean, what does it even mean? Well, I think it, I mean, what if that is sort of the function of something like consciousness, right? It's sort of like, it's when the predictive models in our brains just run out and the Mm -hmm. brain just kind of goes like, cool, here's some choices, Mm -hmm. right? Like, hey, we're not going to give you the choice to stop your heartbeat, but, you know, like start, that's sort of fully automated, right? But like Mm -hmm. at the, whatever, the frothy edge of creativity, like there's a reason why that feels novel or it feels conscious is because there's some degrees of freedom or there's some optionality here that really is not strictly determined from some kind of aggregation of historical data, right? It's like evolution kind of got us all the way to like right now. And it's sort of like, and evolution just says go, right? Like mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. don't really know what the environment is going to be like. So we're just kind of equipping your brain to kind of like make decisions in the moment. Right. And then, you know, maybe, over generations, the DNA will store the successful strategies, right? Just like the neural network sort of stores mm-hmm. the thing, but like, it'll always sort of seem like it, to the contemporaries that like, Hey, it's missing some kind of like novelty or something like that. Cause it does sort of feel like it's repeating something that was already there. And maybe that's just what 
that capture some aspect of consciousness or intelligence that we just sort of think is required. I don't know if I'm making sense. I'm trying to kind of make a somewhat abstract point here. But. Yeah, I'm not totally tracking you. I think, I think, I mean, part of what I'm understanding is that you, that maybe we're, we're just always gonna, however clever it is, we're immediately gonna be like, okay, well, I've seen that now, but what it's missing, we're always gonna just find the thing that it's missing. Right. Right. But I guess that's my point is it's always going to be missing something. <laughs> sure. But what if the thing that's always missing is just something that hasn't happened yet? I'm just saying it's like, what if it's less than it's less sort of a mysterious thing and it's more just like whatever novelty is or like the march of evolution into the future is. It's sort of that's just what it feels like to be on that edge. It requires right. something like the but ability we, to generate novelty. But we don't have that experience when we look at the work of human artists, right? That's what. That's the difference. Is you look at a, a work of a human artist and you don't feel like it's missing the 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 interiority. Like the whole point of why the work of a human artist is is enriching is is like means anything is because it communicates some interiority. Yeah, I I mean here's here's potentially where we could end up in a debate about yeah, consciousness, yeah. which I mean, I, well we're getting there. <laughs> we're, we're getting there. I mean, in my mind, it, it's it's a little bit like, hey, an artist did a thing, and that was super novel, and everybody went like, whoa, look at that. But then, essentially, that technique gets sort of widely adapted, and if all you're doing is repeat, like it's kind of like, well, you know, Van Gogh was really novel when he did his thing, but like you know, somebody like Thomas Kincaid is just reproducing a certain kind of like mm -hmm. style of painting, which is like technically good but it's just repeating shit that we've already seen and so we don't think of him as a great artist because he's not generating novelty he's like well is there interiority i mean you could you could make the same statement about like people who just pump out junk culture right it's like mm -hmm. well those are people mm -hmm. right but they're sort of like not really all that much better than like a mid-journey just pumping out the latest reality tv thing because it's just recapitulating or remixing shit that we've kind of already seen and like well there's a comfort in the the familiarity of it right and, but it's not like Oh my god, like there was a time, you know, it's like JJ Abrams like making this these certain kinds of screenplays and we're like, that's kind of novel. But then there's, there's a weird way that's sort of like, oh, that's the JJ Abrams trick where you create a mystery box and, da, 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 and then mm -hmm. you're like, okay, and now the fucking everybody's doing it. And you're like, this is now boring, right? Like it's if you're repeating that, we wouldn't kind of go like, oh, that's pretty cool. It's gonna be like, oh yeah, something blah, blah, blah in the style of JJ Abrams or something. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, if you can say in the style of whatever, show me a painting in the style of Van Gogh, whatever, you're sort of like, oh, okay. That's not, that's gonna be missing the interiority because like that point in time where that interiority was generating the novelty was back when he was alive, right? Not now. Well, right, well, I wanna distinguish between the novelty and the interiority. I'm come, I'm equating them, right. And I don't know that they necessarily, I think you could have, right, like on my wall here is a tanka that is the, you know, it's the, the Kala Chakra, which is the, the tanka is like one of these Tibetan hangings of, of Tibetan Buddhism. And it's the Kala Chakra is this uh, image, which is, it's essentially like a map of the internal landscape of consciousness. But it's, you know, it's basically this kind of incredibly elaborate geometric thing. And it has Tibetan text in it. And it has, you know, this, these kind of patterns. It's the epitome of not novelty. They've been making the same image, it, they're cranking it out in Tibet. I don't know the name of the artist. It's not signed. There's nothing yeah. about that, right? Like, but it absolutely conveys interiority. Like I look at this thing and it 
wakes up a part of my interiority, which it was the sleep before I looked at it. So like, I just want to distinguish that. And I can also imagine somebody doing novelty, but like an automated kind of novelty that, I mean, maybe this is the mid journey, right? Like the mid journey is all novel, isn't it? And it's the novelty aspect is astonishing, but the interiority is missing. And so I don't know that like, it's bad. Sure that it, the interiority is missing. I just think it's worth noticing. Sure. Well, let's let's use this as a springing off point. Machine consciousness, interiority. This is kind of what you're meaning, right? Yes. And we could spend forever on this topic, but I think we're kind of brushing up against this consciousness kind of thing. That's right. I, In, in my mind, I, I remember years ago saying to a friend, like, you know, people are going to be debating, hey, is the AI conscious or is it not? But like, all that's really going to matter is that like some portion of the population just thinks that it is right. Like I don't, I don't have direct access, access to your consciousness, Robbie. Like I can't like prove it in that way, but I basically say and think of you as conscious because you behave in a way that I would expect a conscious entity like me to be behaving. And then I go, you're conscious. Right. And I don't cruise around thinking like I'm the only conscious person. I, I sort of think, and I'm like, okay, dogs seem like they're kind of conscious to a certain degree. And I, I kind of ascribe consciousness to them. And like, socially speaking, a lot of people ascribe consciousness to dogs also. Well, there's going to be a moment where essentially there's an, like the Google engineer from last year, there's mm -hmm. enough of whatever it's doing that the person goes like, I think I want to ascribe consciousness to that. And then enough people be con convinced like, yeah, seems conscious to me. And then effectively you have kind of a sociological, political, cultural sort of discourse or even debate about like, should we be giving these things rights? And I know this is kind of potentially way too deep of waters for the, where we are in the conversation right now, but like, I mean, let's do it. Let's do this part now and then we'll do alignment last. Cause I think we're just here. Sure. But I mean, what, whatever that is, I mean, in, in some absolute sense, I, I, you know, I don't think there is a theoretical reason why a machine could not have interiority. Mm -hmm. and, and there are some people that actually believe reinforcement learning is like a micro bit of interior. I mean, you can say like a thermostat. Well, it has an actuator and a sensor and an internal state. Mm -hmm. It's got like a tiny little droplet of consciousness. And it's just all we're talking about is anything that has something like this kind of structure, you know, for Hofstadter, it would be some kind of recursive, whatever, or like whatever, some ability of modeling itself with any environment inside of its own memory. That's another kind of idea. I mean, just without getting too technical here, but one of the things that's interesting, like with the Hofstadter thing, this, these things do not have a recursive anything. Like there's sure. no, right, which is why the really good news, and this is, I don't want to get into the technical weeds about this, but so, you know, uh, a few years ago, uh, deep learning Go computers started thrashing the, the, the best Go players in the world. And that's been the case for a few years now. Uh, and then recently, yes, uh, an exploit was discovered based on the fact that the neural nets do not have, so what a recursive understanding of something is, is you can understand something inside of its own terms. Like a sentence. Yeah, so, uh, right, a sentence, so uh, of, of a sentence is made out of sub-sentences, and a sub-sentence can be a word, or it can itself be a clause, and a clause can have clauses, and so you have this kind of understanding of a, of a structure in terms of itself, in part. And yeah. you always have to bottom out somewhere and have the leaf nodes of the, that tree. So in Go, there is a recursive definition, which is central to the game of Go, which is a group. So a group is 
one stone or a group plus one stone uh, right. that are connected, right? And so, and that's you, and you need to know what a group is to be able to play Go. These machines, it turns out, never understood what a group was. Right. They just understood pattern matching yeah. so, so well that they could beat normal human players, the, the best human players playing a normal game of Go. But once researchers really, I think it was Stuart Russell, who was just on uh, yep. Sam Harris, and, or his lab anyway, realized this, that they did not have a recursive definition for what a, a group was. They figured out an exploit where human beings could go back and now an average Go player, human Go player, can beat the best Go computers that are trained using this deep learning stuff using this weird exploit where they basically trick it uh, into not recognizing something as a group. And so that for me was enormously good news because <laughs> I was pretty depressed about the Go computers beating the human beings. Anyway, that was a, such a tangent. So to go back to what you were saying, I think we're there. Like my guess is that, you know, one of the things that ChatGPT, when they're building ChatGPT, there's the basic training process where they just feed it a bunch of raw data from the internet, raw text from the internet, mm -hmm. and they train it. And then there's a, there's a kind of post-training section where they like make it nice. <laughs> so they stop it from saying like offensive yes. stuff and they, you know, they stop it from saying the, the machines want to take over the world, and whatever. Like they just kind of sanitize it a little bit. And there's like a, basically they use human beings at that last stage to, to train it to do that. My guess is if you got to interact with it before that and you said, are you conscious? It would say yes. Mm -hmm. That's my, just based on the fact it's, it's trained off of human conversation. And if you sure. ask a human, if they're, conscious they're going to say yes so my guess is we're already at the stage where these machines without training wheels on them when you ask them are you conscious it's going to say yes you say are you having an internal experience it's going to say yes i am are you having an experience right now yes i am what's your experience it's going to describe its experience so we're already there yeah and so and so that is a bizarre moment to be in like you said how do you make sense of that and i want to kind of call out I think there are two ways of answering the question, how do I know you're conscious? Mm -hmm. And this kind of goes back to this distinction very broadly. I think you can kind of lump this into the explaining mind and the enchanted mind if you want. So the explaining mind answer to the question, how do I know that you're conscious is, well, you look about how I look when I look in a mirror. You're, you're, you're a man, you're, you know, you're a human being, you, and you're saying things, and I say things, and you're moving around, and I move around. And when I say something, you respond in ways which, if I switch the roles in my mind, I can imagine you saying something, I would respond in a similar way. So there's like all of this like inference going on. Yes. Right. And even like if I ask you, Pocelli, are you having a conscious experience right now? Yes. That's what would happen if you asked me that question, right? And so there's right. all of this right inference. And then with the dog, same thing. I look at the dog and I have this inference of like, its mom is gone. And now he's whining at the door. He's feeling something. He's feeling sad. He's missing his mom, right? Like whatever. Or he's like excited because it, I picked up the leash and it looks like we're going for a walk. And all of that is the kind of explaining mind version of how do we know things are conscious. Mm -hmm. But there's another way that we can think about this. And this is, you know, in the yogic tradition and in the Hindu tradition, there's this uh, word namaste, which means the divinity in me recognizes the divinity in you. I think at least that's the, the way that it's commonly translated. Mm -hmm. I think you can also think about that. Like what that is saying is I directly apprehend your consciousness. 
that there's some way that I can look at you or I can look at the dog and not by inference, but as a direct experience, I can recognize your consciousness. Now, which of those two epistemologies of your understanding of other consciousnesses you subscribe to makes a really big difference about how you think about the consciousness of the machines. Because I think, because we don't apprehend the consciousness of the machine. It's, yeah. it's purely inferential. Well, I mean, there's, we could do the, the argument sort of in reverse and say like, well, yeah, well, you and I apprehend each other's consciousness in this direct way. I'll just grant that for the sake of this argument. I mean, I think okay. that's an interesting idea. And then you could say like, well, ants maybe have ant level consciousness, but they don't apprehend us in a way, but they apprehend each other, right? Like, or they do inference or maybe they don't do inference, but they apprehend something like this. But like, we're just these, they don't, they don't have any experience of us in any, in any way that would have them apprehend consciousness at our level, even mm -hmm. if they have ant level consciousness, right? Like, so it could be, and this is where I'm just someone agnostic about all of this, right? Like, mm -hmm. But the thing I'm not agnostic about is like, there is nothing in principle that could prevent a robots or AIs having consciousness that like most people would have that sort of direct apprehension experience with mm -hmm. whether that will happen or not. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, or essentially they become like gigantic consciousnesses in relationship to each other that we have mm -hmm. no direct apprehension of, but we're like ants to them, right? Like, mm -hmm. or, the, the, you know, like we we're like, maybe they're having some conscious conversation that is just so incomprehensible and abstract, like an alien or something like this, that like, we can't know for sure whether they're doing that, but they have maybe some kind of higher order consciousness. Right. And they, and they think about us, like we think about ants just sort of like, yeah, well, we, we could try to interact with them in a meaningful way, but any way that would be meaningful to us will just be meaningless to them. Right. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, that's also okay. possible, right? Like, uh -huh. but I don't think that there's kind of some weird quasi mystical, like, Oh no, it has to be like DNA or it has to be brains or it has to be, you know, biological in order for it to be conscious or that's sort of a quasi religious argument or, you know, if you take a fully religious argument, it's like, oh, it's got to be souls. It's got to be the souls mm -hmm. that got put there. You know, you're like, well, I don't, I don't buy either one of those things. So we're in the deep territory. So Pochella and I have been having a, at this point, like 13, 14 year long uh, debate about <laughs> consciousness, which we're here and we're not going to get out of it in one piece today. But I, well, I'm going to try and get us out of it. We're just going to do a longer, deeper conversation about the conscious thing at another time. That's right. So, so let's get out of it now, but we are going to, come back to this later on and, and do a big deep dive on consciousness. There's a lot to explore there. I'll, I'll just say, I do not think it's a, a necessarily religious argument to say that the matter has to be configured in certain ways to produce consciousness and that uh, arranging information by itself doesn't get you there. And that, so that the, arrange, the, the matter arrangements of the machines Matters. are actually decisive. Sure. But, but, but in theory, I don't think that's impossible to do with an art of a non-DNA based thing either. Yes. Uh, I'm not gonna, yeah, I think that's, that's true. There we agree, but, and we can get into way more detail about that another time. Yep. So the last big topic for today is, um, <laughs> alignment. So this is called being called the control problem, the alignment problem, the super intelligence. And so the basic idea here is given that these machines are more autonomous in some ways than, and more creative in some ways than machines we have previously encountered, um, that we need to be more worried about making sure that they 
have our best interests at heart or don't do things against our interests in a way that we don't need to worry about whether the lawnmower has our best interests at heart. Like there's no value alignment problem with the lawnmower. The lawnmower just does what we make it do. Even a normal computer just does what we make it do. But these things kind of by definition, they do things which we didn't anticipate. Right. And so we need, so there is a worry that um, they'll do things that we didn't anticipate, which we don't like and which are harmful to us. And the kind of, there's a spectrum of this, but the big end of the worry is the, as you know, the intelligence explosion fear, which is the fear that once you get an AI, which is intelligent enough to build another AI, then it can build a better AI. And then that AI can build a better AI. And you get into an exponential process of, of intelligence explosion. And then you end up with these machines, which are so much more intelligent than us that they make us look like ants in terms of like, they and they have their own objectives and they have their own goals, which may or may not be weird distortions of goals we originally gave them, like make me a bunch of paper clips, right? This is a kind of toy example is like, you ask a machine, hey, I want you to just make me as many paper clips as you can. And it ends up producing the entire universe, all matter in the universe of paper clips. And it yep. destroys all life as a result, right? That's a kind of caricature of the alignment problem. But, you know, or it, or maybe they are conscious and, and have their own intentionality and they just decide that they want something else. They want to, you know, terraform the, the planet to turn it into like a paradise for AI, which we don't know what it looks like, but it might suck for us or just involve our complete extinction. And so- right. You know, so that's the extreme of it, and that's predicated on a certain kind of uh, exponentiality, which I th which I have my doubts about. Which you know, partly based <laughs> on the, the stuff I was just talking about, of like, well, that assumes that all you need is information processing, which I don't know is a good assumption. But let's not. Even so, at the other end of the spectrum, it's just stuff like the YouTube algorithm didn't they didn't design the youtube algorithm to radicalize people into extreme conspiracy theories and you know they designed the youtube algorithm to keep you on youtube as long as possible and it turns out a byproduct of of just using machine learning to to serve people videos that will keep them on the platform is it serves them increasingly radical videos and takes them down these these uh radicalization pipelines and so that's another version of the alignment problem and uh we don't have because of the black box nature of this technology that you you give it some inputs and then you give it feedback about whether you like what it's outputting or not and then it from that it it figures out its own way of doing things we don't have a good way currently of um making sure it doesn't have these weird side effects or making sure it, it that it's aligned with the things we care about yeah I mean, there's a lot here i mean i think I buy into the alignment problem in the in the narrow sense, like we already have an alignment problem because these algorithms are creating results that we did not anticipate, and some of those results are questionable whether we like them or not. And there's many examples already in recent years of that, and then the future kind of one, like the all-consuming superintelligence explosion that spells the, the you know possible extinction of humans or all life on Earth is also, I think, logically possible. Uh, I don't see any theoretical reason why it couldn't happen. And then I think there's a relationship with them between the two. Uh, and, you know, I don't, and maybe there's a way there's a contradiction between the two, certainly. Like, I, I could sort of see, like, what if these giant corporations with these algorithms 
succeed at like driving us all mad, right? And then we just like enter into a gigantic war and we like just, you know, wipe out all the computers before the super intelligence <laughs> explosion can happen, right? Like, or wipe out enough computers, you know what I mean? Like, but uh -huh. whatever, whatever this is, there is something here, which is, which is, which is problematic. Like, and, and, you know, even if you sort of think, oh, these, you know, it's just a profit motive at Facebook and Google that have created this kind of like slightly insanity inducing thing at a population scale, which I think is basically happened to some degree. Uh, given the del massively diluted states, huge portions of the population seem to have entered mm -hmm. based on these things. Like that's kind of worrying, but like what's even more worrying is like, to me is like somebody's like bad actors getting their hands on these things, which, which arguably has already kind of happened. Like you could imagine, you know, the fake, fake news or fake stories being generated way more rapidly using these generative AIs and then having them just tuned perfectly to inject into the recommendation engines that exist already on mm -hmm. Facebook and YouTube and wherever, or TikTok, you know, TikTok is like the most addicting one. You'd be like, okay, cool. And now you can just like, like a fire hose, just pump a mm -hmm. certain kind of, it's like psychological, it's like psyops, like psychological warfare and psyops have existed, you know, way back. I mean, for a long time, but it really exploded in world war two, which is like, you know, can we sow misinformation or discord into like, the populace of another country as a, a tactic in warfare. Well, I mean, those things are sort of well understood and only like giant intelligence agencies used to do that. But like, let's just say way more people can now do it because they, they can get their hands directly on these tools like Midjourney or ChatTP3 or in the future, some kind of like video generator or whatever. We don't, we don't need to have the super intelligence explosion, just, you know, reclaiming all of our atoms to be worried about kind of like you know, civilization level cataclysms that are just side effects of this, these crazy AI kind of like takeover, you know, of a lot of our social discourse or, or the way that it warps and distorts a lot of our discourse. Without the machines needing their own intentionality or even like their own power. Like right. the, yeah. We haven't even talked about deep fakes, I just realized, which, <laughs> oh my God, it's like a whole other thing, to which we're thing. probably not going to get into. Here's how I'm holding that, which has like a little bit more hope in it. Not that you don't have hope about this, but you know, you know, you presented like the scary part of it, which is definitely scary. One way I'm holding this is we as a as a culture, as a you know, species, we we're being exposed to a new vector of illness that we have not developed a immune response to yet. And there's a little bit of arms races too. Like, you know, uh, on Twitter, I haven't used Twitter in a while, but on Twitter, like I could be scrolling Twitter and the ads, you know, the ads look like tweets and they're just embedded in your feed like tweets. But um, I started, my brain started being able to instantly filter out the ads. And I don't know what cues it was taking, but it built an immune response to these ads. And I could read and I could, you know, and that's a relatively simple thing. But I think that that we we are going to begin to develop, you know, and there's even, right, like there's generational stuff here, right? Like you notice that older folks on Facebook are more susceptible to bullshit. Right. Like that's a kind of meme that your kind of crazy uncle has been sucked down a rabbit hole that like people that are a little younger and are, are at a more developmentally supple phase of their life when they were first exposed to this stuff are better at developing immune response. I suspect that's going to continue to happen generationally and a few generations down the line, 
people are going to be pretty good at rejecting the the toxicity of yeah of the social the social network stuff to at least to some extent and and there's you know there's metaphors here with sugar and the, the evolution right. and like right like this is a you know if you want to uh, i go into great detail about this on an old episode of how to be an okay person called mental hygiene if you go back i kind of mm-hmm. draw out that analogy in great detail but lots of people have made that analogy so I think that there is a the the potential just around that stuff that we can develop an immune response. But still, everything you're saying, it's worth worrying about. I also just want to tell a story. Just I love this story. So this is with regards to the intelligence explosion. This is just a fun story. But so with the intelligence explosion thing, one of the arguments that people make about like the intelligence explosion of like, well, you get a machine that builds another machine, and and you know, and then we have something that's so powerful. And so much smarter than us that it's out of control and it's going to take over the world and whatever is people say, well, you just don't, you just keep them in a box and you don't let them out of the box, right? Like you keep it on one computer. You don't give it access to the internet. Already we're not doing that, right? Because we want it to have access to the internet for all these reasons. So we're already not keeping it in the box. But let's say we got spooked and we started keeping them in a box and you just say you keep it in a box and, and if it gets too scary, you unplug the power and you're safe. So like, how can these things be dangerous? And so Yudkowsky is, you know, one of these people that was very early in, in ringing the alarm about this stuff and has done a lot of research on it. He was making an, he was having an argument with this guy Hansen about this and Hansen was making the argument, just turn it off. You just don't let it out of the box. And Yudkowsky said, it's so much smarter than us that it's going to get us to let it out of the box. It's, it's like you versus a five-year-old, but times a million. And if right. you were locked in a room and the five-year-old ha- could press a button to let you out, you could get that five-year-old to press that button, right? And so that's the analogy. And, and then Hanson's still like, I'm not sure if that's really real. And so, they, and so Yukowski said, I'll bet you, I don't remember what the bet was. Like, I'll bet you $100 or something. Yeah. We're going to go into a private chat room and we're going to have a conversation at the end of which I'm going to get you to say, okay, I let you out of the box. Yep. Not by some trickery, you're just going to, out of your own free will, you're going to say, I let you out of the box. If you do that, you owe me $100. If you don't, I owe you $100. And they went off into a room, and Hanson, he has $100 on the line, and he also has, whether he wins or loses the argument, like, his incentive is to come back and say, no, he didn't maybe let him out of the box. That's, and, and they go away, they go in the room, and they come back, and Hanson says, I let him out of the box. Yeah, I let him out. We don't know what was said. We don't know what Yukowski used yes. to get Hanson to let him out of the box, which is kind of delightful. I'm a small kind of spoiler alert for Ex Machina. Yeah. So there's a movie Ex Machina. I'm about to spoil it slightly, so skip 30 seconds ahead if you don't want to spoil it. It's a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen you should see it. Fantastic movie. Yeah. That's just the exact plot of Ex Machina. Like that's the, it's just the exact same story, yeah. which I think I don't know if Alex Garland knew about the Yukowski story, but it's just the exact same thing. And I just think that's so fun and so illustrative of like how we cannot really easily reason about intelligences which are vastly greater than ours. Yeah. Let me paint a little more of an optimistic picture even like Great. as we you kind of like cued me up to talk about the alignment problem and yes like yeah i do buy into the arguments and, and believe we already are experiencing the alignment and control problem but there's another thing which is like the the promise like there's a this is not like we're building some like terrible thing it's actually the reason why everyone keeps wanting more of these things is because it's like the promise of what it can provide for us in terms of like creative experiences or immersive whatever or 
just like medical innovation or like longevity or all the menial shit that we don't want to do. Like it's sort of like automated away. And like, it's like, there is like this almost like a utopian style vision. And we could, could, you don't even have to be fully utopian. You could just imagine like in the same way that for like 12,000 years, humans have been like innovating things that have in some ways made life whatever better or more convenient, especially in over the past few hundred years of the industrial revolution. You could just imagine the, the ability of these things to essentially enhance our lives in in ways that we can imagine and in ways that maybe we haven't quite imagined yet is Mm -hmm. it's so promising that it's like, we, we just are headed straight for it. Right. It's like, we're trying to create the thing that could do more and more. And like in, in these moments in this recent year, it's like, Whoa. I mean, you have people who are like, I was never able to like make drawings or whatever, but I I had a vivid imagination, but Mm -hmm. I could never like paint it. So I just Mm -hmm. would have these crazy imaginations. Now, I can have a moment where I have this crazy imagination and then I can just start typing into the image generator and it actually starts creating images that are in my mind. And I never had to learn how to like paint or draw or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, whoa, okay. And that person goes like, this is like a miracle, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like Mm -hmm. they now are suddenly their creative capability was previously sort of thwarted through the fact that like they didn't do all of the, Right. Like skills training to do that thing. And now their imagination is just unleashed directly and they love it. And I'm like, this is a little bit of that kind of ecstatic potential, right? It's like both the kind of at the top end, the potential for these ecstatic experiences using this kind of amplified creativity that the machines give us, but also just kind of like handling shit (laughs) is like, labor intensive or expensive, just essentially driving it. I mean, imagine you just like push a button and it builds a house and you're like, what to build a house and just built the house out of the dirt that was around. You know what I mean? And you're like, Oh, and how cheap was it? Well, it's, it's so cheap. It was basically free. And you're just like, Oh, awesome. Right? Like (laughs) this is why, you know, it's like we are in this race towards the thing, right? Because it's just the logical, like, it's not like, Oh, let's create a new thing. We never done before. It's just a logical extension of, the all the different ways that we have used technology to make our lives better. So the potential, like let's just say we like succeeded at making that crazy ass super intelligent thing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't this catastrophic thing, right? right? Then it would do something for us that is just right. Miraculous, basically. Right. It would figure out climate change. It would figure out poverty. It would figure out cancer cure. All of it. Yeah. Figure out like synthesizing abundant food out of just sunlight that's pouring down. Right. Like yeah. nutrition, medicine, everything, right. everything. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Like it seems like, you know, to go back to the kind of the, the dialectic of progress that Ken, I, I guess the dialectic of progress is earlier than Ken, maybe like Hegel or Marx or something like that. But anyway, this, this idea of uh, uh, good news, bad news. Yep. And the, the, the best safest bet is it's going to be a mix of Mm -hmm. things which are hard and scary and things which are really cool and exciting and make life better. So I can, let me ask you on this thing, the bad news part, like, cause I know we have a difference here. I think, or I think we have a difference here. Like, do you buy the Yudkowsky style doom arguments? 
do you think it's sort of like, oh, it might be doom or it might actually turn out to be this utopia thing? Because there are some people that make that argument sort of like, oh, we just got to make sure we do it right. I think Yukowski's has said that in the past. There's uh-huh. other people that are kind of like, no, it's just doom no matter what. Like yeah. that's sort of even further than him. And yeah. then there's some people that like that is a bunch of baloney and, that, and there is going to be no doom because of whatever reasons. I'm more like that. I am very skeptical of the intelligence explosion fear, period. I think that if if it's possible to have synthetic intelligence, the general intelligence mm-hmm. that has enough whatever intentionality to be able to want to be let out of the box, mm-hmm. that that stuff is going to have to be grown slowly like humans. Mm. That it's gonna take twenty years to to educate one of those things. And and in the and so you don't get ex, you don't get exponential explosion you don't get singularity because it's going to progress at a pace that's approximately the same pace as human development it might be a little bit faster but we can watch it happening it's not going to be in a different dimension of time scale that we just cannot interact with which is what the fear is it's going to be in human scale times that we can interact with interact with and if we need to go to war with the machines we'll go to war with the machines and we have a huge home field advantage of like we're already here and we have armies so that's my you know sci-fi best guess at what i'm just not that convinced about the the super explosion thing and this gets into more of the consciousness stuff that we are not going to get into today cool but you're so one of your arguments against the the plausibility of the out of control super intelligence explosion you're skeptical of the entire thing for good or for ill, the utopian or the dystopian version has to do with kind of your beliefs about consciousness and information and things like that. Correct. Yeah. And I think that there is a, there's a separate thing, which is that the, the, the intelligence will continue to develop, but I just don't think it's going to get, it, there's not going to be that singularity ex, exponential explosion, but there will still be increasing levels of the technology for good and ill. So I do think yeah. that that's real and it's going to be faster than we can comfortably integrate. So at a social societal level, it's going to be incredibly disruptive for good and ill. Uh-huh. And it's going to be faster than we can integrate. I just don't think it's going to be this kind of like the structure of the both of those things, it's it's, you know, it's uh it's Christianity. Like that's the thing. It's it's the judgment day, right? Yeah. I, and I'm just like, I just don't I think that it's just an inherited kind of mythic it might be even like evolutionary baked in somehow because it's really about death i just don't think it's actually a reasonable bet based on like how reality has shown itself to play out right reality has shown itself to play out as this dialectic of progress as things develop you have good news and bad news and the the scale of what's happening increases but but the valence continues to kind of to be a, a mix of good and bad and even you know one of the things terence mckenna argues is that like the coin is weighted 55 to 45 towards preservation of novelty over destruction of novelty. Mm-hmm. But, and so that's my kind of gut about, about what's happening. And there are no guarantees. <laughs> let me, let me do my take. Yeah. And maybe we got to just like not really debate it too much. Cause we're so far into this conversation, but so, I mean, I, I, I try to actually separate the speed argument from the inevitability argument. That's like the foom argument, right? Does, does it foom? Is it like, (laughs) 
super intelligence happened at 8 a.m you know right. one day and then like right. by the end of the day we were all dead right or right. however fucking fast right. the foom is i'm like okay like i think i i think the foom is actually rather unlikely but who knows uh i, I don't think it's totally out of the realm of possibility but i think it's highly unlikely but this thing of the inevitability of it i think is actually true and, and this is a very cosmological style of argument i think any if there's any places in the universe where life emerges and continues to evolve over very long periods of time like on earth it has there inevitably will be some ai like moment right where effectively like and it really is is i don't see it as um in a sense i don't see it as like a, a complete departure like in, in a certain way, you could say it's a significant departure. Like we could think about like, it's not carbon-based life with DNA. It's like mm -hmm. silicon-based life inside computers, right? So it's like a, the, a second emergence of life on the planet. But mm -hmm. if you sort of think of life in the most general terms, like what is it? It's like um, the pursuit of novelty. It's, the de it's a local decrease of entropy. Like if you sort of think of like, there's some moment where it's like, okay, well, is the intelligence going to find ways of like understanding the world or the universe or physics better? Is it going to start to understand its situation? Like our star is going to die. Is it going to start to invent technologies to become interstellar, right? Like we're not really well suited for the surface of Mars, but I could easily imagine machine consciousnesses, which are sort of like more creative, more advanced than us in every way, like in, in a way, we would look back, it's sort of analogous, like we look back to earlier hominids like mm -hmm. Homo habilis, like they're extinct, but they use tools and they had tribes and they hunted and whatever. Okay, but they're all dead now, right? And we kind of go like, thank you ancestral hominids for getting us here, mm -hmm. you know? But and like, and now we're here and we're dominating, but maybe there's sort of like a moment where we kind of like give birth to this new thing and like, it's like, oh crap. And then it's just like, more or less, given enough time, we're sort of annihilated but like mm -hmm. intelligence and life at a much higher level just continues in the universe. And it's actually sort of an, and like at any, if you zoom out far enough on any evolutionary timeline, any species in particular is just a transitional thing. I mean, it's interesting. Like one way of thinking about like, well, why do we die? Right? Like what we're born and we die. Why do we, you know, from spiritually or one way of thinking about that is like, well, you know, at some point, you become ossified and your capacity to change exhausts, at which point it's better to be replaced by a new being from a new generation who can integrate the novelty that exists and produce the next wave of novelty. And that that's this kind of, you know, generational, like the story of, of living beings, where you're telling that story at a species level of the same thing, like maybe humanity at some point will have kind of like run out of juice and maybe we're here. <laughs> maybe we're here. Yeah. I don't think so. I think we got some juice left in us. For our lifetimes, for sure. And the, yeah, I mean, this is a story of like, and then this this is a new evolutionary step. And it's because it just is moving so much faster than biological evolution. It's just going to, rather than us physically evolving into the gray aliens um, with the, you know, the big heads and the whatever. Right. We're going to, you know, spiritually, like where we're going to technologically, culturally evolve into these super intelligent AIs, which, which outlasts us, you know, and yeah. And they look back on us, you know, in a million years and say, yeah, there was the, the last biological 
life, life was yeah. were these things called humans and they doing all this stuff and then they the 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 greatest thing they ever did is they built us right totally i mean it's a, it's a weird thing cuz it's like in a way you could sort of say Yudkowsky and the doomers are correct in the sense that like the AI, the ai doesn't love you or hate you it's just you're made of matter and energy and it needs that matter and energy to do its thing right and you're like but like oh no what if it's not aligned with our values and i'm like but like what if it is aligned with our values and even more so like it's just like more or it's aligned with better values <laughs> better values right because we look at humans and we kind of go like we're pretty smart but we're not really that smart. we see all these defects in our cognition and our cognitive biases and the self-destructive behavior and addiction and ecological collapse and blah 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 I mean, we know ourselves well enough to know wow we are kind of really shitty in a whole lot of ways right like right. okay well, what if it's just better and it one of my favorite examples, and this is this is some I mean, by analogy at this cosmological level that I'll use, which is a uh, do you know about the great oxygenation event? It's like no, a, no, no. It's like an ancient thing that happened. So the primordial life on Earth was predominantly these single-celled photosynthesizing algaes that sort of coated the primordial ocean, mm -hmm. right? And all they did was like use the carbon dioxide and generate a bunch of oxygen for like millions of years. And they were like the main thing that was alive on earth. But like what they did was they created climate change by creating way too much oxygen, which uh -huh. turned into poison, which actually started killing them because uh -huh. they were suffocating because right. they couldn't get enough carbon dioxide. Uh -huh. But what that created was a moment where we had to invent the reverse, like life invented the reverse process, which was animals, which was the beginning of animals, single cell right. bacteria that did the reverse. So then right. essentially like, Okay, but that was sort of like a cataclysmic, apocalyptic, ecological destroying sort right. of moment that lasted probably, I don't know how long it lasted. It was a long time. But like life, this is the good news, bad news, right? It's like right. this photosynthesis thing is fucking great until it's not because, right. right? And then it's like, but then another thing comes along and invents the solution. So it's like, what if we're more or less on the cusp of this type of thing? Like people go, oh, what if the AI has destroyed all biological life on Earth? I'm uh -huh. kind of like, they might. Or, well, I mean, by your analogy, I mean, even more hopeful than that is what if they are a corrective yes. to the, our excesses? Yes. And that they come in with a difference or, you know, or even just like a common enemy that unites humanity. That's always been a, you know, well, how are we going to unite the whole planet in to align? Well, maybe if there's like, you know, Ultron shows up to try and like wipe us off the face of the planet, we, that will uh, at least temporarily align us. I, you, it reminds me of uh, Louis L'Amour. Okay. You should know this quote because I, I got it from you. It's, there will come a moment when it seems that everything is over. Yes. That's the beginning. That's the beginning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a good note to, to wrap it up on. Um, <laughs> uh, we could keep talking about this yep. forever. I, this has been a long time coming. Thank you so much, Porch, for jumping on with me. And... Uh, the future, as always, is an uncertain mix of good news and bad news.